0: Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to local news and social artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and we have the pleasure each week of talking to people who are building a more humane world from the inside out, and we need all the help we can get. <laughs> And this week, uh, a brand new f- friend, uh, Elizabeth Vega from St. Louis, is with me on a Zoom call. Uh, welcome, Elizabeth Vega.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: <laughs> it was one of those amazing uh, little things of where I'm going through Facebook, and I see a friend of mine in, in Columbia who's posted or reposted uh, an article that you put on your Facebook page. Was that written in jail?
1: No, it was, it was not written in jail because, unfortunately, they don't give you pencil and paper in jail, I asked, in part because I really wanted to get the names of the women that I was in there with who had been subjected to um, really blatant civil rights and human rights violations. We did an action in Louisville, Kentucky on behalf of Brianna Taylor. And for those who don't know, Brianna Taylor was an essential worker and EMT. She was 27 years old and she was killed as a result of a no-knock raid by the Louisville police. And this was back in March. And as of yet, none of the police have been charged. Um, the only police officer that was fired was a police officer who, as it turns out, had um, multiple allegations and lawsuits that had been settled, you know quite quietly of rape and also, you know, arresting women and saying, you know, I'll let you go if you have sex with me or if you do this. And so that came out, but he still has not been charged it's been since March. And so there's been this ongoing uprising akin to what's happening in Minneapolis. And um, we decided to do an action with the artists. Cause a lot of the creative direct actions that I help organize are art based. Mm-hmm. And um, we shut down the Louisville bridge for um, about half an hour with some with an altar and a beautiful banner, and um, the police kettled us in and um, arrested 44 people and um, shut the bridge down for seven hours and tried to attribute at least half of that to the protesters. but I timed it. It was half an hour. It's on live stream. you can see it. And um, we're actually kind of brutal with us, but it was well worth it, because it got people talking. And it also moved the conversation of resistance beyond marches and rallies. And I think that that is what really needs to happen. But um, I spent over 24 hours in jail. I was the last one released. They moved me up to the general population. And based off of that experience, I wrote that piece after some healing time and some reflection.
0: Excellent. This is not the first time you're arrested.
1: No, I guess you could say that I'm a seasoned, seasoned arrestee at this point. You know, up until the Ferguson uprising, I had been traffic stuff that typically happens when you're poor and living in Missouri, particularly St. Louis. But since the Ferguson Rebellion, I've been arrested 16 times. Some of it was intentional acts of civil disobedience. Other times it was targeted and just definitely police overreach. And, um, you know, I've had the, I guess it's a unique lens of being in four different jails across the country, um, St. Louis City, St. Louis County, Memphis, El Paso, and now Louisville. So I can actually review jails at this point. And I can say with a certainty that the Louisville jail by far was one of the worst jails that I've ever been in. And I was quite frankly shocked at the level of human rights violations that were occurring and i think that that is reflective of a system that has gone unchecked and unchallenged for far too long
0: right Uh, my guest uh, last week was joseph peters in st louis um, had been uh, house of representatives uh, for six years in uh, legislative district 76 and uh, one of his more recent projects has been the workhouse there in st louis and uh, trying to get it closed down because of the uh, horrible conditions that uh, people are
2: Terrific. yeah
1: there's a vote that's supposed to be happening today actually on that which is quite exciting i think that we are getting in part because of Action St. Louis, Kayla Reed who came out of the Ferguson uprising, you know, as a young activist, has now really taken Action St. Louis to a whole new level and Arch City Defenders. And I think that they've been very instrumental in getting that workhouse closed.
0: Right, he, he mentioned Arch uh, City Defenders. So I wrote down Action St. Louis, I wasn't familiar with that one. Yeah, good. Um, Let's uh, give a little history to catch people up about you. Because, <laughs> I mean, you're not from St. Louis. Uh, you're, I understand you're from Las Cruces, New Mexico. From
1: Yes, Deming, Las Cruces area, yeah.
0: Yeah, and uh, I don't know. You, did you come to St. Louis for work or for school, or how did you go? So, no,
1: get- it's sort of an interesting track. I've been in the... New Mexico, Louisville, St. Louis circuit twice. So the, the first time that I came to St. Louis, I was living in Louisville, Kentucky. My husband and I had separated and divorced and he remarried. And I was living in Louisville and needed to move to a larger market. And his current wife, my ex-husband's current wife, had family in St. Louis, and she wanted to move. And so we kind of tag teamed him. And um, that's actually how I met Tracy. I had submitted my, you know, um, news articles and clips, because you know, to um, the Belleville News Democrat in Illinois, which is right across the river from St. Louis. And Tracy uh, tracked me down. and uh brought me and interviewed me and hired me and you know ultimately um left left shortly thereafter and um i was i i was in st louis so i was a cops and crime reporter for a time doing stories on police brutality did kind of the media circuit for a while um as a journalist and then you know got birds out on that and then started doing some other things and then now I'm an activist so (laughs) it's kind of come full (laughs) circle
0: well somewhere along the line you you got a a master's in counseling so you you have put in a little time on this uh academic side I take
1: that's what's so funny is like you know I'm sort of a late bloomer I um when I say that that was that circuit um i uh uh lived in St. Louis, and then I had the experience of reuniting with my birth family because I'm adopted, oh. and I went back to New Mexico and I spent time there, and throughout that time, I was trying to get my sons who were you know recently graduated and you know uh, out of high school to go to Berea College. And when they didn't go, then I was like trying to recruit their friends to go. And my older son said, you know, mom, I think it's you that wants to go to Berea. (laughs) And I was like, you know, he's right. Because I had my children pretty young. And so I returned to school as an undergraduate at Berea College at the um, ripe old age of 40.
2: Uh
1: And got out of um, Berea and was gonna pursue my master's degree and then ferguson happened and so i did take a couple semesters off for the ferguson uprising and then finally finished my master's degree you know they kind of dragged me screaming and kicking actually to finish (laughs) because i i I felt like i was already doing the work but uh, i'm kind of glad that dr pope did shout out to dr pope push me to finish because I was two, two classes away from, um, from completing my master's. And I was just like, yeah, I'm done. And he's like, no, you can't. <laughs> <Yes>. well, <laughs> but um, I've not got my license ah, mm-hmm. to, to practice counseling. Um, And the, that's a twofold reason. One is, is that During an action where we were protesting Jennifer Joyce, the circuit attorney, who chose not to prosecute the police officer who shot and killed Von Derrick Meyer. And uh, we did an action at her house. And at that action, the police came with guns drawn and pepper spray. And I got pepper sprayed twice and I got accused of assaulting the St. Louis Chief of Police at the circuit attorney's house after he bumped into my hand uh, (laughs) because I couldn't see because I had pepper spray. And I actually did five days home incarceration because I was found guilty of assaulting a law enforcement officer after he bumped into my pepper sprayed hand.
0: You're not quite five feet tall, are
1: you? I'm four foot (laughs) eleven. And... um. (laughs) three-fourths of an inch. I'm not even quite five foot. So, yeah. Well, and you know, that was the second time that I was charged with a misdemeanor assault of an officer. The first time was holding a pumpkin that said racism on it. He snatched the pumpkin out of my hand and charged me with assault of an officer. Well, and I think that that's the dilemma with the system and that's how they tried to do it. I mean, it was clear and obvious. There's videotape footage and everything. Knowing what I know now, I would have not pled guilty to, to that charge. You know, even though it was a misdemeanor um, I would have not pled guilty, but you know, lawyers at the time were like, Oh, this is just the easiest route, but the easiest route is not often the best route. And so I'm currently facing charges in El Paso, Texas. We did an action at the Border Patrol Museum in El Paso, Texas, because children were dying on the border in the hileras, you know, on U.S. soil. Um, and um, we felt like the Border Patrol Museum was, was putting out a clear political narrative, calling people illegal. And um, so, you know, we did an action there and they charged us um, 13 people from seven different states with felony criminal mischief. And so um, I'm currently fighting that. That's been put on hold because of COVID. But um, I am, um, with the help of Bill Quigley in Loyola uh, in New Orleans, um, learning how to defend myself and learning um, how to represent myself in that case. For me, everybody's freaked out about me doing this, including my dad, who's an activist. But for me, it is um, a way to throw a wrench in a system that works so efficiently, crushing the lives of people with plea bargains and this, that somebody choosing to exercise their constitutional right to defend themselves creates disruption And I think that that's what we need. We need disruption at every level. So I'm learning how to do this, and I hope to eventually teach people how to do this, because they're so used to the attorney ju- you know, the way that it just steamrolls along that a, one person standing up and saying, "Oh, I want to exercise my constitutional right to defend myself," does kind of throw the system a curveball. Uh So like in El Paso, one of the things that happened is that all of the local judges decided that the case was too complicated with me defending myself that now they have to bring in a district judge from um, San Antonio who is coming to hear the case. When I requested, um, I submitted a motion for discovery and the prosecutor was like, well, you have to be a lawyer to access you know, our files. And I so I told him, I, I said, you know, I am absolutely shocked that you have no provisions for somebody who is not a lawyer who is exercising their right to defend themselves. And the, the judge backed me up and court ordered them to give me everything that was in the file on paper. And this is where those investigative reporting skills came in, They gave me access to their computer, but they wouldn't let me take notes on a computer. I had to do everything handwritten, and I only had a certain amount of time to do it. And I figured out the system fairly quickly and just documented all the evidence that they had logged in. So when they came to me and gave me my file, I could look and say, well, where is this? This is missing, and this is missing, and this is missing, and made them go back and give me everything that was in the file. And lo and behold, there's things in there that are essential to my um, defense that I'm going to be bringing up.
0: Wonderful. I I I love it. This is a movie, right? You know, somebody's somebody's making a movie out of this.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know <laughs> about that, but I mean, I really believe that um, in fighting the system, you know. And I'm in a unique position, you know. I'm a mother and I'm a grandmother. Um, my kids are grown, you know. Um, I have the privilege of education, um, and so I'm in a unique. And I have the courage and the will to fight. And, um, so, you know, my prayer and meditation every day is whatever I need to surrender, whatever I need to embrace to fulfill my life's purpose, I willingly do. And I really feel like challenging these systems and creating a world that I can be proud to like leave my grandchildren is part of my purpose,
0: let me just read what our mutual friend, Tracy Barnett, briefly wrote about you recently. That was so sweet, too. <laughs> no newsroom could hold the passion and creativity and revolutionary love of this fiery, funny, small in stature, but larger than life woman. What a great description. I I
1: felt so humbled when she wrote that, you know, because I I do think that I love the revolutionary love because to me, like that's that's essential. These systems that we have work by eroding our our trust and our love of self and our love of others, um, our ability to be authentic. But those are the very things that we need to combat the this, this system. We have to be able to trust each other. We have to be able to love one another and not that like kiss, kiss on the cheek, love, but that real human mm-hmm. love that can have the tough conversations, mm-hmm. that can love people through their hurts, you know and that, and, and that can show grace. While at the same time insisting on accountability, you know um and I think that we have lost so much of that because the way that these systems of oppression work is, yes, they're eroding the larger cultural fabric, but they're also at the same time impacting people at a family level at a core human level of who they are and um You know, we wrestle with that all the time in the movement because it's trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. I think that love is the solution to a lot of that. And I'm not saying that to be glib, Mm -hmm. but I really believe in it. And I think that that's also why I'm so proud of Art House, which sprang up directly out of the Ferguson Rebellion. The goal of Art House is so that, you know, in Ferguson, there were glimmers of what it meant to be in community. In mm. Ferguson, there were people that had never met before that grew to really rely and love and care about each other. And seeing just those parts of what it could be like was, uh, inspired me to really create a space where a movement home could be created where mm-hmm. everybody that walked through the door felt what it meant to be loved, not because you did backbends to earn that love, not because you had money that earned you that love, not because you were doing, you know, a uh, great acts of kindness, but just simply because you are a human being worthy of dignity and love, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes it happens per, you know, just right and other times it's a work in progress (laughs) but that's sort of the vision the larger vision
0: so this is a physical location is it not
1: yes yes it's um in the north side of st louis art house means achieving resilience together it is a community house kind of like in the tradition of the catholic worker houses but without the catholicism and um, artists and activists live in the house and also do a lot of work through the house. And so one of the things that was happening the past couple of nights is people were meeting at the house early in the morning for early morning banner drops. Um, sometimes there's political meetings. Um, other times we... Um, do programming for young folks. Um, Oftentimes kids in the neighborhood will just come by to say hi, get cookies, play games, get art supplies. We have a stage in the backyard. And then we also do a six times a month food share where we get food from Whole Foods that they are taking off their shelves because it's reached its sell by date, not its expiration date. And six times a month, Every Wednesday and every other Sunday, we bring food here, fresh milk, produce, and distribute it. You don't have to prove that you're poor. You don't have to show an ID. You just come, and if you need food, you get it. And um, it has also created a really beloved village is kind of what I call it. We're actually in the city of St. Louis at Van De Venner near Natural Bridge and uh, by Fairground Park.
2: Uh
1: Um, (laughs) It's so bizarre because um, I think it was The Guardian that wrote an article that called the strip of Natural Bridge that I live off of um, the most dangerous street in America because there is, um, like there is in all high poverty areas, there is a lot of violence in terms of like, you know, drug violence and and things like that. But to me, that work is not, you know, everyone's like, oh, that just is proof that you need the police. No, that's proof that we need to address poverty, that we need to address trauma, that we need to address education, you know. Um, And that's kind of what we also try to do. There's been several times that we've de-escalated situations just being willing to put ourselves out there.
0: I wanted to go back and and pick up on uh, at least one of the many things that we've already talked about. You said that uh, there was a time where you were charged with a misdemeanor and the prosecuting attorney or somebody said, well, if you just plead guilty, Uh, even though you may not have been guilty, is that what the situation was in that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was completely absurd. The way that the system works, I mean, it's most of the court system runs off a plea bargain. Like, there are very few people who actually go to trial because it's so efficient. And so, um, oftentimes, people get really caught up in the system because the carrot is, oh, well, you'll be able to get your life back, which is a lie. That is totally not true. Mm -hmm. But if you have somebody who is in jail waiting trial and watching their life unravel, a plea bargain initially seems like a good way to get get your life back. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Like I said, you know, knowing what I know now, I would have never pled guilty to that. Mm -hmm. You know, I got community service. It's no big deal. But the El Paso brought it up. And, and said, oh, she was charged with assaulting a police officer, you know, not once, but twice. And if you look at it on paper, yeah, you know, it definitely looks bad. But if you look at the reality of it, it was a street theater protest where we were doing a response because, um, like, in October, uh, during the Ferguson uprising, there was a pumpkin festival in Ohio where folks basically rioted over during the course of this pumpkin festival and did more damage in a single day than had occurred up to that point during the ferguson uprising and they were referred to in the paper as revelers as folks who got rowdy (laughs) and we noticed the disparity and so Derek um laney basically said you know um we should do an action with Pumpkin. And you did. We um, basically wrote racism, sexism, patriarchy, all the things that we were you know protesting on a pumpkin, police <laughs> brutality. And um, there had been a discussion with the cops before that if we smashed the pumpkins, that people would get arrested for civil disobedience, um, literally because we were doing it in front of the county courthouse. Uh Um, But if we held the pumpkin, then it wouldn't be any big deal. (laughs) um, You know, like they would arrest us. Well, being four foot 11 and being six foot tall inside my head, I picked up the biggest pumpkin that said racism on it. (laughs) Two people smashed their pumpkins. I raised the pumpkin over my head and this white six foot tall police officer Snatched the pumpkin out of my head and charged me with the assault of a police officer because he sensed that I was going to smash the pumpkin. So it's all on video. You could actually Google that. It is actually quite hilarious. And the pictures are priceless. I think one of my favorite is he's got the pumpkin that says racism under his arm. He's holding it. There's another photo where they were carting away the evidence in a little red wagon where it had all the pumpkins stacked on there, racism, police brutality, and all. Go to YouTube and put in the search engine, Clayton, protest, pumpkin, and my last name, and it'll come up. (laughs) I spent time in jail, and... I mean, it's so... Like, it's so ridiculous, you know? And I think that that's part of the reason why I love art so much, is that, you know, I kind of joke that I'm tired of marches and rallies like I, I I think that they're pointless at this point. I think that um, we need real creative direct action, and um I think that my rubric now of whether I want to do an action or not is does it make me laugh and or does it make me cry? Mm. so you know, we've done some really, really funny, ridiculous actions that were kind of street theater and you know, heavy on props. Um, We did one that was called How to Get Away with Murder, STL, where we actually portrayed various members of um, Missouri and St. Louis politics. I got to play Lida Kusen. And um, the mayor, there was um, cops and protesters portrayed and we had like costumes and we actually set something on fire in front of city hall (laughs) and i honestly think that that was almost as much for our pleasure as it was for their disruption because um they shut down city hall so we literally had a captive audience and i think like three years later we still laugh a lot talking about that action it was so much fun well that's a
0: good uh a good thing to go by does it make me laugh or does it make
2: me cry direct act
1: yeah i mean i think here's the thing you know um my philosophy on art artivism as i call it is that artists are always in a unique position to shape culture and to also help people reimagine what could be because that's what we do we create
2: right
1: and so For me, even our resistance has to be creating the world that we want to live in, in the now. Mm -hmm. And so the art builds that we do are not just about creating art. They're about teaching people how to collaborate, how to build community, how to work together, how to not cling to an idea, but let it evolve and merge with other ideas to be an even better one so of the release of that ego there's not often a lot of wins in protesting it is is it's called a struggle for a reason and so when you do an art build where people come together and create like that beautiful brianna taylor banner and people work on that and see that there's something beautiful that happens. and that was a collaboration. Chanel Helm, who is amazing, doing amazing liberation work in Louisville, Kentucky, had come to Ferguson. And so we we had that relationship. So when the shooting happened, where seven people were shot, I called her up. I think it was probably 11 or 12 o'clock at night. And I was like, what do you need? And she's like, I need seasoned organizers down here. And I love working with young folks. I love working with artists. And so we started working with the artists in St. Louis who wanted to do something, but didn't know how to use art in a direct action, Mm -hmm. didn't know how to do an art bill, didn't, you know, all of this. And so we were able to, St. Louis folks who had learned the hard way how to do artivism, because oftentimes the art that is done is often the coast and it's often the realm of the really rich nonprofits like the Sierra Club and like Greenpeace. They're often the ones who do like these creative direct action camps. But when Ferguson first happened, somebody was like, oh, are you going to do an art build? And I was like, what's an art build? And when they told me, I was like, oh, let's do this. And so we learned how to make stuff together. You know, we did that marriage casket. We did the Requiem for Mike Brown. We started to use art as, as a form of both healing and resistance. It's, a, um, it's an art build. Like learning how to do that was amazing. I mean, you know, because very quickly discovered that, you know, it isn't just about the art. It is also about building of the world that we want to live in even if it's just for a couple of hours, you know what I mean? Quite a journey. So when we went to Louisville, we brought folks from St. Louis um, who had like, initially when we started doing the art and the banner drops, we were using sheets. And now thanks to like lessons that we've learned, we use ripstock nylon, which is almost like a parachute material. Mm. And it's just so much easier to work with. And it's so much lighter. And it's, And, you know, just tricks that we learn. And so, like, how do you make an 18-foot, 38-foot wide banner? (laughs) You know, how do you create something that big? We taught them how to do it. We etched it out for them. And then Louisville artists took it over and created that beautiful banner off of the, the, you know, we just kind of traced it. And then they added their own flourish. So they added the red on the side. Because if you see the banner, it says, they tried to bury me, not knowing I was a seed.
2: What a beautiful statement.
1: You know, that is actually came from the Ayotzinapa struggle in Mexico, where the students disappeared. And that was happening right around the same time as Ferguson. And we met some of the Ayotzinapa mothers and fathers who came to Ferguson. And that was one of the things that they told us and it stuck with us. And we started using it in the Ferguson uprising and then watched it go at various points across the country. And, you know, it is really a very beautiful, resilient, resistive idea is that, you know, yes, folks, folks die and we have immense sorrow, but we don't have despair. Because even in those deaths, they become seeds of purpose and a commitment to we're going to ensure that this doesn't happen again. And, um, you know, Victor Frankl said that despair is suffering without meaning. Mm. And I think that art is one of those things that can give despair, that can give suffering meaning. I could talk about this all day. You, you're going to have to ask questions. I, I mean, you know, you just let me go.
0: <laughs> hey, I'm just, I'm just learning so many good uh, things from you. And I'm, I'm reminded again of of the title of this show is, is Global News in Social Artistry. And social artistry is doing what you are doing as an artist, uh, building a more humane world from the inside out. I feel such a kinship to to all that you're describing. Uh,
2: so
1: Well, I will tell you that for your show you should definitely check out the book Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown. Um it is one of my favorite books. I've I call it I call it my Bible.
2: <laughs> okay.
1: It is it really she really gives shape and form to a lot of the ideas that I did intuitively. And um, she is, is one of the ones that talks about how, what does it mean to have a radical imagination? White supremacy culture, one of the things that is so prevalent with it is that it demands perfection. But perfection is a blockade to innovation. You cannot innovate if you're afraid of making mistakes. And if you're, if you have to be perfect. And so when we talk about defunding the police, you know, it's like, well, what does that look like? And, you know, white supremacy culture says that you have to have the answer now and it has to be solid and concrete. But if you're trying to have a radical imagination, the question becomes, well, how do you change the ocean while you're swimming in it? What does that look like? And you can innovate and you can adapt. Well, those are all the things that we learn in art builds. Those are all the things that we learn when we do creative direct action. It's like, oh, this rope sticks to concrete. That's something to know that there's this specific type of rope. We're not going to use that again. Some people will be like, oh, that's a mistake. No, it wasn't. It was a lesson that we learned. It's just a really new way of thinking. And I think that part of a resistance is is that you have to have a joyous rebellion because anger will only get you so far. And if this is a light, like this is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And so even in our resistance, we have to be joyful. So, you know, we shut down that bridge with a beautiful banner and an ofrenda and lots of mischief that made it that you know made it more difficult for power that made us laugh but even when 44 of us were on that curb in zip ties arrested we were laughing we were joking we were singing we were supporting each other and folks that had been the first time that they were arrested said that that was so much more empowering than all the marches and rallies that they had um, participated in, you know, because it was purposeful, it was strategic, but it was also joyfully rebellious. That's what I think that we need at this point is that we have to feel our resistance so much. And it's such a counterpoint to the numbing that is required to live in this culture. It's such a counterpoint to the lack of humanity. You know, and it makes a difference because it's a, it challenges authority because they are seeing, no, we're not afraid. Right. And even if we are a little afraid, we can show our vulnerability in our humanity because that's also strength.
0: Tell us about the ofrenda.
1: So, you know, I'm Latina. And so altars that, like from Dia de los Huertos, um, Dia de los Huertos is rooted in an idea of three deaths. The death when your heart stops beating, the death when you're placed in the ground, and the third and most significant death when there's no one left to remember. So at every occupation that I've ever done, at every protest I ever do, at every art build I do, one of the very first things that I do is I set up a sacred space. Mm -hmm. A space that is a tribute to those that we're fighting for and the reasons why we're fighting for And that is also a sacred space where people can connect to the work in a way that touches spirit. And we've had some amazing moments around the ofrendas. Ofrenda basically means offering, but it is, it's like a memory altar. Mm -hmm. And so, um, We shut down the um, Second Street Bridge with a mural piece that was done by a collective of Black artists that was called The Four Stages of Black Grief. We had a box that was covered in beautiful fabric that said Black Lives Matter. Underneath, it said Rest and Power that people had hand-painted and that had candles and flowers. And it was a tribute
2: mm-hmm. to the
1: humanity of those that died. And, and that, I'm not even going to deny. We filled that box with concrete, quick, quickly oh, concrete. Wow. And laughed while we did it.
0: <laughs> that, that's another new phrase for me, rest in power. I saw that yeah. on your Facebook page, and uh, it resonated with me. Rest in power. R.I.P. Uh, it's yeah, interesting. Interesting that my wife and I just watched Coco together last night. Oh, I love that movie. Yes, yes. So I learned about Ofrendas uh, in the movie. It was very touching.
1: You know, at Art House, we do it every year, it's part of the culture of the house. We have um, a Dia de los Puertos celebration. There's something really beautiful about people bringing pictures of their loved ones and sharing stories and passing. And, you know, um, we've had kids in the neighborhood who have lost loved ones. I had, a, a um, Arzal. <laughs> he, um, his father, um, unfortunately got murdered and, um, came over to the house and he was like lady do you got any more of that cheese toast and I was making him cheese toast this was the day of his father's funeral and um, he said you know I need um," he's like you got any of those butterflies still Vega because the previous year we had done the ofrenda and I explained to him how the butterflies the mariposas bring the ancestors back to us Mm. and he requested butterflies for him and his mother and his brother because his father was an ancestor now, and he wanted to remember him.
2: Oh, how
0: sweet is that. um,
1: You know, we had another um, young man who lost his mother, and he was seven, but he was a big seven. I mean, I am really good at guessing children's ages, and he looked like he was about 12. So he, because he looked older, I think that his grief was not recognized, but mm-hmm. this is like part of the beauty of the house is that, you know, the kids in the neighborhood know that they could come. And so I came home from work. I was doing a catering gig at the time because I don't get that George Soros check FYI that everybody says I get. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I work. I, you know, sometimes I work two and three gigs to support my full-time volunteer work. He comes to the house with his, his, his friend, Christian, and I'm getting ready to open up the door. And Christian says, Jeremiah, you need to tell her. And I was like, tell me what, Jeremiah. And he was like, my mommy died the day before my birthday. And I was like, oh, when was your birthday? And he told me, and so we go in and I have these fruit kebabs and we eat these fruit kebabs. I noticed we had sticks from the kebabs. And I was like, I bet we have all the materials to make a kite. And so I Googled it and I was reading off the list of supplies. And I remember Christian being like, we got all that Miss Vega. And I was like, yeah, that's what happens when you live in community. You get everything that you need. So we made the kites. And um, as we're making the kites, I'm telling Jeremiah about how in Guatemala for the other los Muertos, what people do is they make these big, beautiful kites to honor their dead. Mm. And I was like, you know, you can, you can make a kite for your mom. Mm. And, you know, he complained that it wasn't perfect enough. And that was an opportunity to say, you know, things don't have to be perfect to be Right, you know, and um, I remember him in the backyard, flying this kite, so excited, saying, "You know, my mommy's making my kite fly the highest. My mommy's making my kite fly the highest." And the other kids were like, "She is Jeremiah. She is." You know, that's the beauty of the work of art, in a nutshell. You know that those kinds of exchanges can happen organically and can happen, you know, they didn't have to travel any place. They could just walk across the street and have that experience. Yeah. And I could have that experience with them. But that is that meaning of art. It's the same kind of energy that we bring to the protest when we do that. I think that artists and art is the heart of a movement, heartbeat of a movement, mm-hmm. because it can explain so much like sometimes there, there's not enough words and you need music and you need poetry and you need visual and you need laughter I mean I just believe that the artists have a very important place in this movement and if they're sitting on the sidelines now's the time to 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 jump in
0: yes the time is right the uh, day of the dead.
1: November 1st is for people who have lost children and November 2nd is for everybody. Um, So it's typically November 1st, November 2nd. We try to have ours like right around the same time. I always set up a big, beautiful altar and um, we always have a lot of food. Uh, uh, We always do a campfire and one of the Things that we do is if people didn't bring a photo or if they have other people that they remember, they I have names of people that they want to remember. So the act of writing down somebody's name is also really powerful because in American culture, once somebody dies, that's it. You handle the bureaucracy of their life and you never write their name again. You you know, it's just out of sight, out of mind. And I don't think that there's closure. I think that you integrate that loss into your life. Um, And it's so powerful because oftentimes people will, we have have people write the names and put it in a basket. And around 11 or 12, we do a reading of the names. Mm -hmm. And we read the names and toss it into the fire and then do a collective toast. Mm -hmm. And... um, sometimes people will get the name of somebody they wrote, but in somebody else's handwriting.
2: Huh.
1: And so it shows those connections. It shows, you know, and there's a commonality. I think that as human beings, we're terrified of losing that which we love, but it's an, it's it's inevitable. You know, that's the price that we pay for loving. It's the price that we pay for being human.
2: Right,
1: right. But... We have these living, breathing memories that we can um, draw on. And you're still in relationship with the person, even if they're not here physically. Those memories, you're still engaging with them. And, um, you know, And I learned that because I have buried a daughter, you know, and she is also the source of my courage Mm. and the source of my love. They say that losing a child is the worst experience that you could have. And, you know, I can vouch that it was pretty rough. But in my experience, we think that when someone dies, that the pieces of our heart are going to fall out on the floor. But in my experience, it's an opportunity to break open as opposed to breaking apart. Hmm. And so I feel like going through that experience where I, you know, loved my daughter, she taught me that the joy of loving another human being for any length of time always outweighs the void Mm. and that she's the source of my courage Mm. because I can, I, I know that I can face the world with my wide open cracked heart, you know? that has so much space for love to reside in. I'm not going to say that it wasn't hard. I mean, there were times where I thought that it I wasn't going to laugh again and it was going to, you know, my arms ache to physically hold her. I had a perpetual lump in my throat. But, mm. you know, she would be 27. And one of the things that's so beautiful is, is she's buried in Louisville, Kentucky. and mm. The weekend that, the first weekend that I went to work with the young artists and activists in Louisville was around the same time as her birth and death. Mm-hmm. And so, so it was very much like a full circle moment. I'm um, a year older than what, what my daughter would be.
2: And, mm-hmm.
1: and I'm working with people who are the same age as she would be. Felt very much like the continuity of, of that journey, um, in a different way. And, you know, Khalil Gibran, who is one of my favorite poets, talks about how your sorrow carves you out for your joy. And the deeper your sorrow, the more joy you can contain. And I just, I believe that. I believe that, you know, um, I spent, the first half of my life, the first like 30 years of my life being deeply carved out. And now I have, and the thing with that is, is that they both coexist and reside together. So like the losses and the hurts that I experienced give that joy so much definition and depth.
0: Well, Elizabeth Vega. (laughs) You, you have made my day.
2: I,
1: I, oh, thank you! I've talked your ear off.
2: No, I, <laughs>
1: it's gone I'm, all over in that ADHD creative spiral.
0: <laughs> I'm just in awe and gratitude for for you and and your perspectives, your work, uh, the things that you have yet to produce and draw out of us. <laughs> draw out of us or you know
1: that's a funny joke you know i am a community artist i am a conceptual artist i am a poet a writer and a storyteller i can't draw for i can't draw (laughs) and um it's so funny that the other night when we were making banners the young folks were talking about, oh yeah, and we'll just etch the banner and there'll be three of us. And I was like, there's four people in the room. And they're like, we know big. <laughs> uh,
0: they, know, they know you well.
1: They do. They tease me. You know, it's, uh, it's such, it is such a privilege to be 53 years old and to be, literally spending the bulk of my time with folks who are in their late teens to late 20s who are teaching me about what it means to to be intentional the pronouns you know there is something so beautiful about the way the young folks insist and ask people's pronouns because it is such an honor of who each person is. It is also the hardest thing that I have to work on. Because mm-hmm. I'm unraveling like 53 years of programming around gender and grammar right. and all of that. But, you know, it's really beautiful. And the times that I get, because I do. I mean, there's times where I'm like, especially before the pandemic and especially before this uprising, I was getting a little bit um, Eeyore-ish about what was happening in the world. Mm-hmm. And I can honestly say that now I am so hopeful because these young folks that they are going to change the world. And I do believe that it's beautiful. And if I can say anything. At all to my generation and the generation, you know, the baby boomers is like, it is time for us to step the hell back and let these young folks lead. And I'm sorry, Joe Biden is not the one. And nobody's listening to these young folks saying that. But, you know, they're saying he's not the one. And the boomers are ba- b- blaming these young folks for not voting for a candidate that is so status quo when they're calling for radical transformation. And it's so difficult. I know it's so difficult to like really just recognize that this is their world now. And our goal as, you know, an older generation needs to be to, cultivate what they are asking for without judgment without what would mlk do what uh you know we are so judgmental mm-hmm. and i have i have learned so much from these young folks i am continually humbled to be in their presence and to see their courage and their creativity and their humor and their vision for the world and i know it's I don't know if you can cuss on public radio, on public radio, but I tell these dumb folks all the time, I am so sorry because I feel like our generations handed them a big pile of burning shit and are saying to them, put this out and make it not stink.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And shame on us, shame on us for, you know, leaving it up to them. You know, we got complacent. We absolutely did. And so now, you know, that my kids are raised and I have grandkids, I feel like I'm making up for lost time. And it's like, you know, boot
0: camp. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Elizabeth, it's like we're out of time.
2: (laughs) It
1: was such a pleasure tapping your ear off.
0: Well, fantastic! I get to listen to it all again, so that I can make sure it fits into the the time frame and, and cut out, uh, del- censor out the, the swear words. Uh, well, yeah, one or two. That's all right.
1: So I, I cuss people, like a sailor. So I thought I did pretty good.
0: You did great. <laughs> I want people to find you uh, if they want. So can they look up uh, art? House St. Louis. They can look. Yeah, that's up.
1: that's one way. And my Facebook is public. I mean, everybody says I shouldn't do that, but I don't know.
0: Well, we're friends now, and that was just uh, today. <laughs> right. Nice to meet you, friend. <laughs> yeah. So find Elizabeth Vega on Facebook or Google her or Art House St. Louis, or maybe you could just uh, look up. Clayton protest pumpkin and
2: uh
1: <laughs> <maybe they could laughs> Yeah that is worth that it's pretty funny. Okay.
2: Look, um it, it involves
1: and this. the thing that's really funny it involves all my housemates before we were housemates and one of my housemates Stephen Holtsworth who is you should interview him sometime he is quite amazing he was very Involved in like act up and all of that. Um, you will hear him um, In the background (laughs) Say that woman did not smash a
2: pumpkin
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you send me his name and we will uh, get together and I'll sign off here with the audience by saying uh, Remember folks wherever you are That is your world Please leave your world cleaner more peaceful, and more loving than you found it, because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Talk to you soon.